Can everyone hear me? Yes? Okay. So I am Dr. Juanette McKenzie from the Department of Physiology and Neuroscience. And I'm tasked with the privilege of taking you through your motor system lectures. So we have a series of nine lectures and about four clinical cases in which we will examine the motor system. Today we begin with our introductory lecture on the organization of the motor system. And uh, this lecture will form the foundation, so to speak, for the other lectures that are upcoming. Now for the motor systems, you will find that some concepts are very simple. And then there are some concepts that might be a little challenging. So I want to encourage you that as soon as you find something is a bit difficult for you and you just can't understand it, please feel free to contact me by email or you can come see me during my office hours so that we can clarify those concepts so that you'll be able to perform well as it relates to your motor system aspect. So today we have three simple objective, objectives. Sorry. We will be tasked with describing the general overview of the motor system and how the motor system is modulated. We'll also have to contrast between lower motor neurons and upper motor neurons. And I want to take this opportunity to underscore the importance of understanding the difference between your upper motor neurons and your lower motor neurons because it's going to be a very large component of your motor systems. And then we're going to look at the concept of start and route function and how it's utilized in describing the different motor pathways. So for your assigned reading, of course, you have your essential neuroscience and your neuroanatomy at last, and I want to encourage you to utilize these resources. So we'll begin with the first objective in which we have to describe the general overview of the motor system and how it is modulated. So as we get into that, I want to give you a question. Okay, so this question asks which of the following motor pathways is principally involved in involuntary motor activity. So from this question, we can see that for our motor system, we have involuntary activities and we have voluntary activity. So which one of these motor pathways would be responsible or involved in involuntary activity? And how would you know this if you pre-read the slide? So let's see how many persons pre-read or were able to choose the right one. Okay, so I see that there's a wide distribution. That's all right. By the end of the lecture, you should be able to know which one is which one's involuntary and which one would be voluntary. All right, so we have five motor pathways here that we're going to study in depth throughout our motor system lectures. 
and most of our motor pathways are cortically controlled. So once the motor pathway is cortically controlled, it means that you can voluntarily control it. So this question is asking you which one has the least or no cortical input at all. And the answer would be your vestibular spinal pathway that has the least cortical input. So it's not necessarily involved in um, voluntary motor activity. So your motor system allows you to carry out movements that are precise and smooth. That's once there is no pathology. And the primary pathways that we're going to look at over, this, over a series of lectures would be our corticospinal and our corticobulbar pathways or systems. These are the most clinically relevant motor, motor pathways. So you must make sure that you understand them inside out based on what we will be discussing for our series of lectures. Now, as the name signifies, corticospinal, corticobulbar, it means that they are cortically controlled. They originate from the cortex. And so they're responsible for voluntary motor activity. There are other pathways that have cortical input, and that would be your rubrospinal and your, your reticulospinal pathways. These also have cortical input, not as much as your corticospinal, and so they are also voluntarily controlled. Now your vestibulospinal, as we saw in the question earlier, your two vesti vestibulospinal tracts, they receive minimal cortical input, so they're not necessarily voluntary tracks, all right? They're responsible for involuntary motor activities, but it is important to know that they receive much sensory input from your vestibular nuclei. Now, the, imp the information that comes from your cortex that allows us to carry out motor activity, if it is not modulated, it would be crude and unrefined. So if we did not have modulation, we will have crude and undefined movements, another smooth, precise movements that we, that we usually see. See? Smooth, precise. Okay? So what does that? We have several different um, contributors towards our modulation. So we have sensory input. Sensory input is very important for us in the modulation of our motor activity. And the sensory input comes from your DCML, dorsal column, medial meniscus, and your ALS. We also have sensory input from our spinal reticular tract. Now, in discussing the overview of the organization of the motor system, it's important for us to take a look at this picture. Now, our prefrontal cortex, anyone knows what happens there? What happens in your prefrontal cortex? Planning, all right? So as I was thinking about this lecture and how I'm going to bring over this whole idea of movement to you, I, was I decided that I would come and I would demonstrate movement in a dance. Mm. So I started to decide what moves I would do. All right? You think the dance is going to happen? Yes, correct. It's not going to happen. All right. So it just happened in my mind. Okay? So in my prefrontal cortex, I decided I'm going, I decide I'm going to do a particular motor activity. So I see that you're taking some coffee, this? 
right? So you decide that you're going to pick up that cup. So that happens in your prefrontal cortex. You decide what you want to do. Or you decide what you're not going to do. Now then that information has to go to your premotor cortex. Now your premotor cortex is where you have programmed movements stored. Okay? So this dance that I was planning to do, I had to have the movements programmed somewhere in my mind. You understand? She just picked up the cup. Now there's some, somewhere in, in, in her premotor cortex, there is information there that tells her, tells her how to pick up the cup in terms of what muscles need to be activated, what muscles need to be deactivated. You're all, you understanding what I'm saying? Good. So your premotor cortex is where you have the storage of your programmed um, activities. So all the things that you've learned to do from childhood until now, all these motor activities, they're stored in your premotor cortex. So my prefrontal cortex informs my premotor cortex that I want to do this particular activity. That information now has to go to my pre my primary, sorry, my primary motor cortex. And what's happening in my primary motor cortex? What do I have there? Where is the primary motor cortex? Precentral gyrus, very well. And you know in your precentral gyrus, you have this homunculus, your motor homunculus, that codes for all the different parts of your body. So as I decide I'm going to do one particular move, my premotor cortex now has to get this information to my primary motor cortex so that I can now bring these muscles into action. All right? That information, if it travels down the spinal cord and goes to the muscles without being refined, it's going to be a very unpleasant sight. All right? So it has to be refined so that they can be smooth and precise. And where do we see the refining happening? Now we see these green structures here. You have your basal ganglia and your cerebellum. These two centers are responsible for refining your activity. Now your cerebellum is going to refine your activity as it is in progress. Okay? And we're going to study the basal ganglia and the cerebellum in detail in future lectures. Now we see that after the basal ganglia and the cerebellum refines the particular action, the information goes to the thalamus and the thalamus then relays that information back to the primary motor cortex. Um. All right, um, so could anyone help me with the mouse, please? Thank you. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. All right, so we see the thalamus is now going to relay that information back to the primary motor cortex, and that information now would be uh, relayed via the upper motor neurons, so your cortical bulb or your cortical spinal uh, tract, to the muscle. All right. Now, how does it get to the muscle? It gets there via your lower motor neurons. 
your upper motor neuron is going to relay the information in within the, the spinal cord or the brainstem, depending on if you're talking about your corticospinal, which is going to be spinal cord, or your cortical bulbar, which you're talking about brainstem. And then they're going to synapse onto lower motor neurons that are now going to influence the particular muscle. Now we see that we also have our sensory, our sensory pathways here, and they are also going to influence the activity of our motor system. Our vestibular, our vestibular apparatus is important because, of course, for balance, and it's also involved in the activity of the vestibular spinal tract. We have our red nucleus. Your red nucleus is involved in the rubrospinal pathway. And we're going to see how all of these come together as we go through the series of lectures. So now that we've looked at the overview of the organization of the motor systems, we now have to contrast between the lower versus upper motor neurons. So your lower motor neurons, as we saw in the diagram earlier, they are the ones that are going to be in direct contact with your muscles. So those are the ones that have the direct influence over the particular muscles. And they can arise from the spinal cord, in which they'll be called spinal nerves. Or if they arise from the brainstem, they're called cranial nerves. Your upper motor neurons, on the other hand, these are the ones that come from the cortex, and they are going to now influence your lower motor neurons. So your upper motor neurons has control over your, your lower motor neurons, and then the lower motor neurons is going to influence the muscles directly. Now we have a note here that says that many of these upper motor neurons, and you will see, they undergo decussation that will allow control of the contralateral aspect of the body, and we'll see that in the next lecture. So since we're talking about upper motor neurons and lower motor neurons, it's important to identify where these are located in a cross-section of the spinal cord. So here we have a cross-section. Which one of these numbers here would, would identify the locations of your lower motor neurons? Okay, so number one would indicate the location of what? Right, your dorsal collar, medial meniscus system. Very well. What about number two? Would you find motor neurons at number two? Those, those would be your sensory neurons. Very well, this is your dorsal horn. Very well. So we're left with three and four. And which one of these locations will indicate the location of our lower motor neurons? That is, those neurons that are going to directly communicate with the, the um, contracting muscles. So let's see what you taught. All right, so most of you chose three, and that's correct. So three is your ventral horn, and this is where you'll have your cell bodies for your lower motor neurons.
So everyone should get this question right. I hope. Let's see what you thought. Interesting. All right, so identify the location of your upper motor neurons. I see 39% of you chose three. Now, we said three will, would be the location of where we have the cell bodies for our lower motor neurons. Okay, so in the ventral horn, lower motor neurons. So the answer is four, all right? In your anterior lateral columns, that's where you have your upper motor neurons. Now, this is important. So if I give you this diagram and I say that a patient has a lesion at three, and I ask you what symptoms you will see, you should be able to identify that, okay, that's the location of the lower motor neurons. So therefore, this patient will have lower motor neuron symptoms. All right? And if I give you a cross-section again, and I say that the patient has a lesion in the anterior lateral column, so that's all here, okay? You, and I ask you what um, symptoms you will see, you should identify that that is the location where you'll have your upper motor neurons, and so you should be able to choose an upper motor neuron symptom. Is that clear? So now we're going to look at the concept of start, end, route, and function as it is utilized in learning the motor pathways. So we know what start, end, route, and function means, so we'll get right into it. So in terms of start, our corticospinal and corticobulbar tracts, they originate in the cortex, as the name implies. Your rubrospinal tract, it originates at the red nucleus, hence its name, rubrospinal. Now these tracts are the ones that are principally voluntary, in, in function, and they're the, they're the most clinically significant ones with the, with the corticospinal and the corticobulbar. These are highlighted because, as I said before, these are the ones that you'll have to know very well for your motor system. Now, you see that your corticospinal tract is divided into a lateral part and an anterior part. Why is the anterior part not bolded? Because it accounts for like about 8% of your corticospinal tract. So it's not very clinically significant. Most of what we will look at will involve your lateral corticospinal tract. So this is the aspect that you want to, that you want to focus on. And remember, your corticospinal tract are going to have influence on your, on your spinal nerves, while your corticobulbar tract will have influence on your cranial nerves. As it relates to your reticulospinal and your vestibular pathways, they would originate in the reticular formation or from the vestibular nucleus. Now, where do these fibers end? Now, as we saw earlier, we have our upper motor neurons or the tracts. We have them in the columns, the anterior lateral columns, and we have the lower motor neurons in the ventral horn, okay? So you're seeing, for example, here, you're seeing uh, black dots, so to speak, in the, in the lateral column. So that would be where you have your tract. And where you see the coloring on the ventral horn, that would be where you have the motor neurons associated with that tract. Okay? See so our medial 
pathways, they're biased for extension, and we see our medial pathways here. All right, you have here, you have your pontine reticulospinal pathway. In this one, you have your lateral vestibular spinal pathway, and then you have your medial vestibular spinal pathway. All right, so these ones would be biased for extension, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in some upcoming slides. And you see that their lower motor neuron pool is adjacent to them in the ventral horn. While you have your lateral pathways, we have our lateral cortical spinal, which we said is very important. Then there's a rubrospinal, and then we have our lateral reticulospinal. Okay? These ones are biased towards flexion, and we see them in the lateral aspect of the cord. And we see that the motor neuron pool, that's the lower motor neuron pool, it's in the ventral horn, just adjacent to the location. All right, good. Yeah, so just for us for a while. Careful. All right. So location of your low motor neurons in relation to function. So we were able to identify the location of our low motor neuron as in the ventral horn. So we have a spinal homunculus, so to speak. And if we take the ventral horn and we divide it, we can see that the proximal, the proximal area would be responsible for the muscles of the trunk, while the more distal area or the more lateral area would be responsible for the distal aspects. Now, the upper part of your ventral horn would be responsible for your flexor muscles, and the lower part will be responsible for your extensors and your abductor muscles. Okay? Yes, the computer is showing low motor neuron symptoms. It's just freezing. I'm not sure why. Okay, good. So following on with what we talked about earlier, we, we saw the location of the flexor bias and extensor bias lower motor neuron pools. Now we're looking at the location of the flexor bias and extensor bias upper motor neuron fibers. So we see that the flexor bias fibers are located laterally while the extensor biased uh, fibers are located anteriorly. All right, so this just brings us back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of what pathways are responsible for what activity. 
and you can be able to figure that out based on the location. All right, so your lateral pathways are for flexion and your medial pathways are for extension. So therefore, what you need to know in depth, as I said before, is the location of your corticospinal fibers and the motor neuron pool that is influenced by your corticospinal fibers. So you need to know that very well. But for the other tracks, you don't necessarily have to know the exact location. What you need to know is if it's medially located or if it's laterally located. That's all you need to know for the other tracks. But for the corticospinal one, we want you to know exactly where it is located and where we can find the motor neuron pool that it influences. Right, so we have this 26-year-old woman that comes to our physician because she has pain in her wrist for one week. And on examination, we found tenderness on the flexor surface, and there's also limited flexion. So the question asks, which of the labor location represents the position of the lower motor neurons that control wrist flexion? So the first thing we have to think about is the wrist proximally located or distally located? It's distally located. So, therefore, the answer choice that we're looking for, will it be proximal or will it be distal? It's going to be distal. And then they're talking about the flexors of the wrist. So, where would we find the flexors? Is it going to be anterior or is it going to be posterior? Huh? So, it's going to be posteriorly located. Remember, your extensors are anterior. All right, so the answer is B, your dorsal lateral. So this is where, if you, if you were asking for wrist extensors, well, then it would have been D. So now we're going to look at a few clinical correlations that <coughs> reflect on what we learned as it relates to our organization of the motor system. So it's important to understand that your upper motor neurons, they're going to influence your lower motor neurons, which directly communicate with your muscle fibers. Now, diseases of the lower motor neurons and the upper motor neurons produce characteristic findings, which we will discuss in detail in the upcoming lecture. But do you know what are the symptoms of a lower motor neuron disease? Do you? Flaccid paralysis, very well. Anything else? Hyporeflexia, very well. You have fasciculations, fibrillations. And we're going to talk about this in detail in our next lecture. So the first one we want to talk about is ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. It's also called Lou Gehrig's disease. Lou Gehrig, as you know, was a famous baseballer, and he was diagnosed with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Now, Lou Gehrig... He noticed that he wasn't performing as well as he used to at his sport, and so he decided to seek medical attention. And as he went to his doctor, he walked into the office, and the doctor recognized that his gait was abnormal. And from his gait, the doctor was able to infer 
that Lou Gehrig had amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Of course, he went on to do a physical examination and he did the necessary investigations. But it's important to note that as budding physicians, we must pay attention to every single detail because it can give us important information as it relates to what is affecting our patients. Now, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, amyotrophy, refers to the atrophy of the muscles that is seen. The lateral sclerosis talks to the hardening of the lateral columns of the spinal cord, and the principal fibers that are affected here would be your corticospinal fibers. So we have degeneration of our anterior horn cells, along with some cranial nerve fibers that are affected, and we also have hardening of our corticospinal fibers. So this patient will present with upper motor neuron symptoms, low motor neuron symptoms, or both. Lower, yes. Anything else? So they will present with lower motor neuron symptoms because they have degeneration of the anterior horn cells, okay? And they also have degeneration of cranial nerves. And as we said before, they have hardening of the lateral columns of the spinal cord, or sclerosis of the lateral columns of the spinal cord, affecting principally the corticospinal tract. So these patients will present with upper and lower motor neuron symptoms. And it usually begins with the upper limbs and eventually moves on to the lower limbs. It principally affects more males than females over the age of 50. And after diagnosis, the patient has about a 40% chance of living for five years. The cause is not well known, but an autosomal, autosomal dominant form has been localized. And in Guam, we see that there's a high incidence of this disease. The features, they're going to basically be low motor neuron, as we said earlier in presentation, because we have degeneration of our anterior horn cells where we find our, motor, our low motor neuron pool. So we're going to have low motor neuron symptoms, and here we have them cataloged here, atrophy, weakness, fasciculations. You're going to also have loss of muscle bulk, all right? And uh, we're also going to see upper motor neuron symptoms in these patients eventually because our corticospinal tract in the lateral column will be affected. Here we have a picture that's actually showing some atrophy or wasting of the muscle of a patient who, has, who has amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. All right, so this is supposed to be a video of the hand of someone who has wasting, but um, it's not working at this point. So I'm gonna show you in the next lecture. So you can also see bulbar manifestations, and your bulbar manifestations are going to be the manifestations associated with your cranial nerves. When we talk about bulb, we're talking about the brain stem. So they have a reduced cough reflex, and these patients can actually aspirate um, easily and develop aspiration pneumonia that can cause their demise. We also see emotional and cognitive deficits in patients with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Now, as we move on to diseases of the spinal cord, these diseases can affect our upper motor neurons and our lower motor neurons, depending on the extent of, disease, of the disease. And let's begin by looking at our anterior spinal artery syndrome. 
So we know that our anterior spinal artery runs on the anterior aspect of the spinal cord in the anterior median fissure. And it is responsible for supplying about two-thirds of the anterior lateral aspect of the spinal cord. So this image here shows us the territory over which our anterior spinal artery is going to supply. So we see that it's supplying our ventral horn. We see that it's supplying our ALS, all right? We see that it's also supplying a very small aspect of our lateral corticospinal tract. We see that it's also supplying our anterior corticospinal tract, which we said is um, not very clinically significant because it only represents about 8% of the corticospinal tract. So therefore, if you have injury to the anterior spinal artery, what symptoms do you expect to see? All right, so someone with injury to the anterior spinal cord, what do we expect to see? Now, based on the diagram that we looked at before, you should have been able to identify that if we lose the anterior spinal artery, we will lose blood supply to the lower motor neuron pool because the, anter the anterior horn is affected. We're also going to lose blood supply to some amount of the lateral corticospinal tract. So we are going to affect our upper motor neurons there. Are we going to lose vibration and proprioception? Why not? Right, so vibration and, and proprioception are mediated by the DCML, which is located dorsally. So it's not within the territory of our anterior spinal artery. What about pain and temperature perception below the lesion? Would this be affected? Yes, it's definitely going to be affected. So someone who has injury to the anterior spinal artery, they should have all those symptoms. Let's see if you are able to that you are able to identify those. So we talked about the anterior spinal artery and its location in the anterior median fissure and its supply of the anterior two thirds thereabout of the spinal cord. Now, how can this artery be affected? It could be affected via infarction. It can be affected via tumors. It can be affected via trauma, diseases of the aorta, connected tissue diseases like Marfan syndrome, or a herniation of a, of a disc can cause spinal artery syndrome. It's relatively rare. And the clinical findings, what we would see, we would see paraparesis because we have affected our motor, our motor tracts. We'll also see bilateral extensor plantar response. Now, your extensor plantar response is a sign 
that you will see in patients who have an upper motor neuron lesion. And we'll talk about this more in our lecture that's coming up, corticospinal, corticobulbar fibers. But just as we're on it, your bilateral extensor plantar response is something that you will see in an injury to your corticospinal tracts. Bilateral loss of pain and temperature, as we said, will be due to the fact that we're affecting our ALS. Touch, vibration, proprioception, these will be intact because we're not affecting our dorsal column, medial lemoniscus. Now, sexual functions may be impaired depending on the location of the lesion. So now we're going to move on to central medullary syndrome. Central medullary syndrome. <clears throat> so when we talk about central medullary syndrome, we're specifically speaking to like syrinx, where we have a cyst within the central canal of the spinal cord. And here we can see it's highlighted in this turquoise color. Now, what will be affected if we have this cyst expanding from the central aspect of the spinal cord? Now, we see just adjacent to that, that cyst, we have our motor neuron pool. So we are going to affect our lower motor neurons. So this patient will have some lower motor neuron symptoms. Now, we also see that there's a decussation of a particular tract here. What tract is decussating here? Huh? Your spinal thalamic or your ALS, okay? It's decussating here, so these patients will have sensory, sensory symptoms too. And these sensory symptoms will be what in nature? What sensory symptoms are we looking for in a patient who has central medullary syndrome? I'm hearing voices, but no words. Right, so we're going to lose pain and temperature very well. Okay, finally the slide has changed. So syringomyelia is a condition where you have a cyst, as we said earlier, that is expanding from within the central canal of the spinal cord. And this cyst actually is um, usually located within the cervical aspect of the spinal cord, and it can extend even up into the medulla. We talked about what structures are going to be affected in terms of your ALS, and this can also expand to affect your ventral horn. Now, clinical features that we would see, we'll have segmental atrophy. So muscles of the hand and the fingers, your distal muscles are usually affected initially in this, in this particular disease. And then as the disease progresses, we will see the shoulder girdles and so on being affected. And as it relates to pain and temperature, it is said that the loss of pain and temperature is like a cape-like fashion where you're losing it over your upper limbs and your shoulder girdles. And of course, that is due to the fact that you're compressing the decussating fibers of the ALS at your anterior white commissure. All right, so that's the very last slide. For the lecture, I'll see you on Wednesday. Thursday.